I'm in Knightsbridge looking at the Mandarin Oriental Hotel, which is the epitome of London style and wealth, with its Michelin-starred restaurants and a large spa area where guests relax and unwind after a hectic day shopping at nearby Harrods department store. I'd go in, only I'm wearing runners, and I'm not sure I'd mingle easily with the well-heeled and the wealthy, for whom Knightsbridge is a playground of hedonism and excess. Basically, it's a place to really enjoy being filthy rich. Besides, I'm not here for champagne and oysters. I'm on a mission to walk these streets and the neighbourhoods of Belgravia and Chelsea, where the Russian oligarchs with links to the Kremlin have snapped up a staggering £1.5 billion worth of property. Stephen Miller is our guide. He's a lawyer by day, but has written a series of books about London's hidden walks. And today, he's taking us on the ultimate property porn tour. As well. But we're just going to walk around really Knightsbridge and Belgravia. We're going to see a lot of big properties, see um, if you've got low self-esteem problems, today is probably not a good day because you're, <laughs> you're going to come away thinking how little you've achieved. I felt that. You're going to see some beautiful people and beautiful cars and you know, 60 million pound properties. And some of them are more than that. Um, so it's a very different world from what we're used to. Um, so anyway, we started here really because a lot of, uh, a lot of can I use foreigners? A lot of Russian or Eastern European oligarchs have come to this area because they can buy property fairly easily. Um, it doesn't get many checks. Uh, so it's actually easier here than Manhattan in many ways, some of the checks they have to do. And why is this particular area very popular? Well, you've got Harvey Nicks, um, you've got Harrods. Harrods is actually like the place everybody wants to be at. And we'll, we'll see a house of a lady late, uh, later who spent 60 million pounds in Harrods who got in a bit of trouble, you know. Yeah on 54 credit cards, and that was like just one of the places. So Harrods is a big draw. Um, that's why you see a lot of the supercars around here, a lot of Middle Eastern money, a lot of Eastern Europe money, a lot of Chinese money. Um, and it's gone in waves over different um, decades. Harvey Nicks, uh, I mean, Harvey Nicks about 10, 15 years ago was saying, we're gonna open up a Moscow branch. We're gonna hire Russian speaking people to help the Russian clients coming in. So Harvey Nicks has gone as well as sort of trying to feed this um, need for like Russian clients. And then over here we've got the, um, the Mandarin Hotel. Um, I think there was a woman in the FT had a night here in one of the suites. It's I think £42,000 a night for a suite and she had a free night here. So just uh, they had its own TV series I think about it. You might have seen it. But this is the kind of super hyper expensive um, hotel. A lot of Middle Eastern money coming in. They'll hire a suite for the season and then they'll kind of go back to the Middle East or whatever. So we're talking like Harvey Nicks, um, super expensive hotel. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna cross over to one Hyde Park place here, which is like the super expensive apartment block. Um, so let's cross the road and we'll go over there. It's a bit quieter. Rich Russians didn't just happen upon London as a place to store their vast wealth. They were enticed there by special investor visas. Once they invested a paltry £2 million, pocket change to Vladimir Putin's rich friends, they were free to come and go as they pleased. And the Russians are in good company. According to Forbes, London is home to over 60 billionaires. They're a global set with a combined net worth of something like three hundred billion pounds. You know, London is to the billionaire as the uh, as the jungles of Sumatra are to the orangutan. <laughs> Congratulations on that. We're, we're proud of that. I mean, we're quite proud of it. I mean, let's be clear. We're 
We have mixed feelings, but... I'm sure you like your poor people too, though. Exactly right. But now the authorities are cracking down. Since Russia invaded Ukraine, there has been tough talk and sanctions against over a thousand individuals and entities for being closely associated with the government of Russia and with Vladimir Putin. Included in the sanctions list was Roman Abranovich, the owner of Chelsea Football Club, who became one of the richest and most successful teams in British football after he took control nearly 20 years ago. Well, you see, I think Abranovich has got a lot, because I think he did the whole Chelsea thing, he suddenly became a celebrity, and he took the attention off the others, and that's exactly what Putin yeah, wanted. Yeah. You know, I used to live in a street in Wimbledon, and there's a lot of kind of quite wealthy people around there, Chelsea fans. Yeah. And you've got like barristers and people of influential. And when they start saying, I love Chelsea, I love Abranovich, they, yeah. they, they didn't have any affiliations to any lot before, but suddenly you see this guy coming in and they're winning competitions. It's a very yeah. subtle form of PR, you know? No, indeed. Because um, yeah. when you just see some guy's yacht, you get like, you think, oh, that sod's got a big yacht. But when they've got a football club and you're, you're winning, they've pulled you into their yeah, little circle of trust, you know? Abramovich, one of Putin's closest allies, also snapped up a property portfolio in the UK valued at £250 million. And that includes 70 houses, apartments and plots of land. The oligarchs aren't the only ones with their tentacles in London. Stephen Miller's walk takes us to the Knightsbridge property of one Zamira Hajieva, the wife of an Azerbaijani banker, jailed for defrauding his state-owned bank out of hundreds of millions. So they reckon he stole about two billion from, so it's not just Russia, it's other, other areas. So he took about two billion, put in jail. She was like left here in the house and she spent 60 million pounds at Harrods. Yeah, so that all came out in the court case. So he spent 16.3 million pounds between 2006 and 2016 using 54 different credit cards. She bought a five bedroom house, which is this one, for 11 million. Um, she obviously bought it because it's beside Harrods, because she probably got a taxi there, I suspect. Um, she spent £10 million on a 170-acre golf country estate in Ascot. She spent $42 million on a Gulfstream jet. And they seized, uh, the National Crime Agency seized 49 items of jewellery worth uh, 400000 And they seized a Cartier ring worth $1.2 million. And she lost her appeal, so... Uh, I think they've only done about three of these orders. So if you actually think about how, I reckon most of these streets, there's probably 60, 70% is foreign owned. It's not held in direct names, it's held through shell companies. They should be slapping these orders a lot more widely. Yeah. And of course, if it takes them like two or three years to go through court, it would have cost the crime agency millions probably legal costs itself just to fight this. Um, so it's a very difficult task. And the pressure you get is they don't really, um, they don't really uh, give enough resources to this crime agency. The Tories aren't particularly interested in really digging up this stuff. So it's a bit of a kind of lip service. And the fact they picked on a lady whose husband was in jail and they weren't picking yeah. on the Russians who actually own the stuff directly, I find it quite fascinating. And why was there a successful court case against her as opposed to the other oligarchs whose wealth is in London? Because her husband fell out of favour and was jailed in Azerbaijan. And that meant that he didn't have a state protecting him. This is Oliver Bullo, a journalist who has spent decades covering corruption and dirty money in post-Soviet Russia. His latest book, Butler to the World, looks at how the City of London services the needs of the world's richest people, from money laundering to butlers and footmen. 
There, there was another equivalent court case brought against the daughter of the former president of Kazakhstan, whose family remained very much in favour in her home county, and that, that case fell apart, um, you know, because a crucial part of Britain's enabling industry is our extremely aggressive and very effective legal services teams. So if you are an oligarch and if you still have wealth and if you can produce evidence from your home country, then British lawyers will make sure that nothing can happen to you. You know, the, the, the wealth is so well defended, it's almost impossible to describe, um, really. And obviously, at the moment, there's a lot of talk about Russian oligarchs. There's, you know, Russian yachts being seized and Russian sanctions being imposed and so on. But that's just one country. You know, there are dozens of other countries which have produced oligarchs who have brought as much money to, to, to London. Um, you know, that's... You know, there's no question at the moment about looking into Chinese origin wealth, Malaysian origin wealth, Azeri wealth, Kazakh wealth, Ukrainian wealth. You know, these places have produced as many kleptocrats as Russia has, and those kleptocrats have brought their money to London just as Russians have. And we're not talking about them. And, you know, so, so you know, the, the current discussion about Russian oligarchs is, is not yet a, a cultural change that, that's suggesting that London's going to get out of this game. It's just an awareness that perhaps we were silly to, 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 uh, to invite Russian wealth here. Um, there's no recognition that, that, that the, the sort of oligarch services business model is somehow flawed or, or, or morally questionable. One-fifth of the sales of superprime homes worth £10 million or more go to Russian nationals in London. And the ever-spiralling prices are pushing everyone else out of the market. But anyway, this building here, the whole building here, is uh, one Hyde Park Square. It's, it's regarded... It, I actually don't think the building looks particularly special. It's actually described as the most exclusive address in the world. Yeah. One of the properties here went for uh, £160 million for an apartment. There's two Russian oligarchs who have bought properties here. So you might have held, 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 you might have heard of the Candy Brothers, yeah? This is their big thing. So the Candy Brothers um, ended up doing interior development for Russians, and then they started to join up with uh, Qatari money to start doing developments, uh, redevelopments of houses. And this was their big development. So I think there's 80 units in here, um, and they go for like 30, 40 million minimum, and the big ones go for 150 to 200. And of course, what people are doing, they buy them, they spend another 50 million doing them up. So many of those properties are used occasionally, if at all, by their owners. They are not so much houses as bank accounts, you know, or, or, or more accurately as safety deposit boxes, because, you know, a house isn't just an empty space, it's full of stuff. So you can fill it with all your other valuable things. You can put your art in it, your furniture, all the, all the antiques that you own, and, and it's all protected. Um, you don't really have to pay for security guards because the Metropolitan Police will protect it for you. Um, when squatters turned up uh, to occupy Oleg Deripaska's place on Belgrave Square, was it a couple of weeks ago now? Um, you know, there, there were dozens of police officers outside, not even doing anything, just hanging around, waiting to try and evict these four guys who were sort of dangling their feet off the balcony, um, which just seemed amazingly appropriate, you know, and indicative of London's entire approach to suspicious wealth. As soon as wealth is challenged by someone without wealth, then the police turn up. But, you know, no one questioned the origin of the money when it turned up in the first place. You know, it's, um, and that's just the whole story. Uh, if you've got money, you're welcome. And, and that money is protected by, you know, the full might of the British state. Freshly sanctioned billionaire Oleg Deripaska 
owns shares in a Hornish Illumina in Limerick, one of the Midwest's biggest employers. Only weeks ago, protesters occupied the London mansion owned by his family, while police with riot shields and helmets tried to coax the squatters down from the balcony. Squatters are now occupying the mansion of a Russian oligarch in London, and let's go live to Belgrave Square. The activists said they wanted to liberate the Deripaska property in Belgrave Square and hand it over to Ukrainian refugees. Uh, we are a property liberation front. That's what we do, we are liberated. So this place is not really squatted, it's liberated. Filthy rich, it's amazing, it's beautiful. Uh, I think more refugee deserves it. It's, uh, it would at least uh, raise his mood a little bit. Derry Pasca has vigorously denied all allegations of financial crimes. How did these oligarchs get so rich in the first place? After the fall of communism and the breakup of the Soviet Union in the 1990s, Russia had its own unique version of a gold rush. You had Glasnost, you had Gorbachev, and you had uh, Yeltsin. So when the communism fell in Russia, they had a big privatization program. So all these uh, communists owned the aluminium, pet, uh, you know, gas factories, etc. They all got privatized. So what they did was they gave ordinary Russians vouchers and said, we'll give you like a free voucher in your company because we're privatizing it. They had no idea what they were doing. And these poor people who were like, you know, queuing up for bread had these vouchers. It was like an ownership voucher. And you go, well, I can't eat this. And then someone come, literally would walk, knock on your door and say, I'll buy it for you for like a couple of rubles. And you go, fair enough. And then they gather them all up and then they convert them into shareholding and then you suddenly find these people have taken over the company for little money. And then the oligarchs would start to lend money to Yeltsin, because Yeltsin was going bust, the Russian, you know, they're in a terrible economic situation. So the oligarchs were lending money to people like Yeltsin and saying, we'll lend you a few billion, but if you can't pay us back and you default, we take control over the company that we've been lending the money to. And what was happening, and the Russians were then not paying back the money, and these oligarchs were then allowed to take over the companies they'd been lending the money to. So they got, that was another way of getting money. So that's why you ended up with these uh, massive like natural mineral, petrol, sorry, petrol, gas, aluminium. That's why these massively uh, important industries end up getting controlled by a fairly small number of people. David McWilliams is one of Ireland's leading economic commentators. After the fall of communism, McWilliams lived in Russia and even learned the language there. So when Russia collapsed in the early 1990s, there was an extraordinary opportunity for commodity traders or people who were involved in commodities to sell the commodities like oil or wood or steel or whatever in the West for dollars, but pay the Russian people and all the Russian infrastructure in rubles. And as the ruble collapsed, they could make an absolute fortune because their bills were in a currency that was falling, but their receipts were in a currency that was rising rapidly. And that is really the genesis of all of them. The Yeltsin regime ends in collapse, and during this period, what the oligarchs were trying to do was get all that money out of Russia. And they did, largely to Switzerland, and then, as we know, to London, where most of them live. After Vladimir Putin became president in 2000, the oligarchs were issued an ultimatum. They could continue to run their businesses if they stayed out of politics and provide funds when required. Then Putin comes in and Putin basically says to them, look guys, you can keep this scam going, but I want to cut. 
And Bill Browder, he claims that in his book about Putin, that Putin's cut and his mate's cut was 50% of all deals, which is kind of amazing. The main change that's happened in recent times is Putin started to get a lot of his ex-KGB colleagues and friends from St. Petersburg and judo buddies, they've started to become part of his central power and they're starting to control the industries as well. So that's this oligarch. And the oligarch is from the Greek scene, like rule by the few. So basically you've got Putin saying, you can keep your money, give me like, you know, half of what you've got. That's why they reckon Putin's worth maybe 200 billion. And the oligarchs are like Abranovich have to do what Putin says, which is allegedly go off and buy Chelsea. Abranovich will go and buy Chelsea. Putin will say, go and be a governor of this province in the middle of nowhere. Abranovich goes off to be a governor. And then in return, Abranovich gets to keep his money. And that's why they can buy 150 million pound apartments here, so. The flood of Russian money into London can be traced to the introduction of the golden visa scheme in the UK in 1994. That system allowed basically anyone with £2 million to invest in Britain to come live there, no questions asked. The scheme has now been abolished, but not before about 2,500 Russians were granted entry, including Roman Abramovich. Russian oligarch money obviously is a post-communist story, just because that's when the oligarchs appeared. Um, you know, the first house sales to Russian buyers were within weeks of the end of communism. I mean, I actually met the first the estate agent who sold the first property to a Russian. I mean, he, you know, at the time he was amused by how much the guy was prepared to pay, but it actually turned out it was the most spectacularly good investment. You know, the house has probably gone up in price tenfold since, since the Russian bought it. And then after Putin took power, there was this period of very high oil prices, which inevitably meant a lot of Russian money is flowing out of Russia, and much of that ended up here. Um, you know, buying many of the houses that you would have seen at the weekend, you know, in, in Belgravia and Knightsbridge. And further out, there are places, uh, you know, Wittenhurst, the biggest house in London after Buckingham Palace. Um, and then out into the home counties, big estates, um, you know, huge stately homes and so on. It, it's, a, it's, a whole, it, it's, a, it's a whole different world. But was all this Russian money only going into property? Or was it being used to curry political and social favour? Was it used to influence the UK from within? So the Russians will come over and they will hire PR firm, they'll hire lawyers, they'll hire um, concierge firms, and they'll work out ways to um, inf oh yeah, talk about infiltrate. It is effective infiltration. So, for example, the PR firms in London who will connect the Russians to the Tory party. Uh, there's New Century Media, a lovely guy called David Burnside you might have heard of. Uh, what he'll do is he'll connect Tory uh, Russians to the Tory party and arrange donations. Um, they'll set up charities. You know, a Russian will say, I'll put you know, 50 million to a charity. I'll get a minor royal to sit on the board of the charity. Uh, one, of the, one of the Russian oligarchs donated a lot of money to Eton College, you know, like, as if Eton College actually needs money for its library, but he donated money. He donated money to Cambridge. So suddenly they're getting their fingers in all the British institutions, uh, which is just the way they do it. And it's actually not the Russians the first to do this. It's always been the way foreign groups coming into trying to be part of the British establishment, ingratiate themselves. So by using money, they, they create influence. The Tory party or any political party, Peter Mendelssohn, Tony Blair, they were mates with the Russians as well. So that's just how it goes. It's a well-trodden path. And when they come here, they can just go to PR firms to help them connect. They can go to law firms to litigate against anybody, criticize them in the press. They can buy media firms. So Lebedev has bought, you know, the Evening Standard, 
an independent ex-KGB agent. His son has just been made a life peer by Boris Johnson. And he goes off to Boris, uh, Boris Johnson goes to his Tuscan mansion and gets up to who knows what, looking a bit drunk in the morning, according to the newspaper reports. And then he gets made a life peer. And then he can influence the media through um, newspapers. That's how it goes, you know, so. The National Crime Agency estimates that at least £100 billion in illicit money is channelled through the UK each year. It's one outcome of London's well-established and highly sophisticated financial services sector, with its accountants, lawyers and financial managers who've been moving money around for centuries. Dubai is, is, is putting on a, a strong challenge, but, um, but it's got a long way to go before it's even going to be close to being able to achieve what, what you know, the UK and the more broad sort of British archipelago is able to achieve. Um, you know, because of you know, the legacy of the British Empire, the legacy of the financial connections between London and many corners of the world. You know, Britain possesses an unrivaled ability to move money and hide money and accept money, um, which has really put it at the centre of the whole oligarch financial system. I mean, this isn't just Russian oligarchs, obviously. Um, oligarchs from everywhere. All the other countries of the former Soviet Union, um, you know, Nigeria, Angola, Malaysia, China, Indonesia, you name it, the money comes here. Um, whether it just comes here to be washed clean before going somewhere else or, or it gets washed clean and then stays here, um, it, it doesn't really matter. We, we'll do it all. In March, the House of Commons passed a law aimed at cracking down on the system that allowed wealthy elites to buy property through overseas shell companies and hide their assets. But does the Economic Crime and Transparency Bill go far enough? So what people do is they'll, they'll put their money through trusts and companies and they'll have a network of ownership and they'll go through offshore centres. So these will be registered in the name of some BGI or Cayman Island company or Isle of Man company. So you've got no idea who actually owns it. And I, I suspect maybe half or more of the properties on a typical street here will be held through offshore entities where you won't know who's, who's done it. So that's why they talk about you know, London being a laundromat, the big money laundering centre for the world. In fact, it is. I never thought that, but I'm pretty convinced it is now. Um, and it's interesting because David Cameron a few years ago said, yeah, we're going to have this register where if you own property in London, you've got to show who actually owns the thing. Funny enough, it never happened. So they talk the talk and only now they're starting to talk about doing it for real. Um, which I find really, really odd. And you think, well, who's pulling the levers there that stop them doing it? I mean, what have we got to lose if they disclose it? Now, we talk about all these sort of parasitical companies, state agents, lawyers, PR companies, uh, barristers, um, you know, Christie's, all the people who make money out of this. Whenever people talk about trying to restrict this foreign ownership, these companies say, oh, but we'll lose money, house prices will, you know, crash, and, the, you know, we'll all lose out because they're spending their money here. But the thing is, they don't live here. A lot of them don't spend any money here at all. They just own the property, pay very little council tax, um, and they, we don't really benefit. In fact, we're all disadvantaged because house prices end up going up and up and up, and your kids and stuff can't afford a house. So for me, it's an incredibly negative thing. If they all disappeared, I think we'll survive, you know. There might be a dip in house prices, we might be able to buy that for less than 50 million, but you know, we'll see. For almost 30 years now, Britain has been the destination of choice for the wealthy Russian elites. Entire industries have built up to service their needs, and they've reshaped the city of London through their investments. 
come. We don't make wealth anymore. We just live off like parasites off the wealth that comes in from abroad, which is a bit sad, really, when you think about, you know, exactly. we created the steam engine and all these amazing inventions, you know. I know it's not quite that simple, but there's a ring of truth to it. They've become deeply embedded in the financial and political systems of the country, donating generously to the Tory party in particular. Yeah, there's a lady who's another, the wife of another oligarch who spent a lot of money to have a tennis match with Johnson and she's donated £2 million to the Tories party. So there's a guy, the, the Tory co-chairman, co so he set up the concierge company for rich, rich Russians, he becomes the chairman of the Tory party and he set up an advisory group which allows the big Tory donors to have a sort of informal chance to talk to the top team of Boris Johnson and that's Russian money as well. How easy? Will it be to untangle such a complex web of money and of power? And is there political will in Westminster to force through such significant change? Successive governments, and this isn't just a dig at Boris Johnson, this has been a problem for decades, have just under-resourced these agencies. The, you know, the Asset Recovery Agency was never really given a, a, a chance. Um, you know, the, the National Crime Agency the same. It's just not resourced how it needs to be. It doesn't have a tenth of the resources it needs. Looking at this from, from the Irish perspective, it must be incredibly frustrating. You know, you've got, you've got you know, just, just, just in the north of, of, of Ireland, you know, uh, criminals are able to get away with stuff that they can't get away with in the Republic because of the UK's failure to police this properly. And I, I'm hopeful that there are some signs of change. Um, the, the Crown Prosecution Service here is beginning to use uh, civil recovery powers um, a bit more systematically. It's, it's early days, but they're having some tentative signs of success, and hopefully that becomes self-funding. So that could be, could be positive. I mean, it's, it's, it, they should have done it earlier, but, you know, it's never too late to do the right thing. Um, you know, there's this new um, uh, special levy on the financial services industry to help pay for fighting financial crime, which is going to raise, I think, about 100 million quid a year, which is, it's not nearly enough, but it's a lot better than what there has been. You know, I, I'd say there are tentative flickers of hope that you can feel about what's happening that I, I haven't felt for a while, or if at all, actually. Russian oligarchs are a big issue now. But if they go, others will come. And tackling this issue of dirty money is not just a problem for London, but for the world. It is very like drug dealing, because as long as you have a, a user, drugs are going to get to that person by various channels. Sometimes it's one gang, sometimes it's another gang. I mean, this is, uh, I think it's the same with, with, with you know, go oil, gas, etc. Uh, if China don't come on board with the West, which they will not, and they've no intention of, because they're playing a much more different game to us, right? Russian oil will go to China. China is the world's biggest importer of commodities and resources. So they're very happy to do, they're very happy to buy Russian oil at the moment because Russians are a distressed seller. Because what's happening is the Russians have loads of stuff that they have to sell. The Western Europeans are saying, we're not going to buy it. So it's a distressed seller. So it's given bargains to the Chinese and the Indians. And it's the middlemen who used to be the oligarchs. New middlemen will arrive. And maybe those flats in Eaton Square will be bought by new middlemen at a discount to the price Abramovich pays and the circus starts again. That's the way it works. You know, it is a case of following the money. And as you said, the faces might change, the families might change, even the nationality might change. But the end game is that the middlemen or the, what they call the commodity traders, or the oligarchs, just re-emerge. At the end of the day, 
this isn't really about Britain. It's about the fact that we have provided the financial, legal and other services required for some of the worst people in the world to commit gross brutalities on their citizens of their countries, you know. And yes, there's been some inconveniences for Brits who can't afford to live in Knightsbridge anymore. But, you know, the real issue here is Ukraine and Nigeria and China and the fact that these, you know, kleptocratic or autocratic uh, political systems have been able to, you know, support themselves and fund themselves because of the city of London. And that is the real issue. And, you know, the, so the point I keep making, yes, I'll talk about house prices and how bad that is, but it, it's a, it's a, you know, it's about what kind of world we want to live in, really. And, and the sort of amazing hypocrisy in, in a country that, you know, prides itself on being democratic, while at the same time, you know, taking money from the, the, the least democratic people on earth. So that's the point I'm going to keep making. And I, I think that it does get a degree of cut through and I, and I think it, it, it's getting more attention than it did before and I'm hopeful that that will continue. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Audio clips used in this podcast come from Freakonomics, CBC News, and Euronews. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.